This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. 7.36 a.m. You're listening to The Morning Run with Shazana Shaoning and Jen Sun. In half an hour, we have the breakfast grill. And ahead of International Women's Day tomorrow, we're going to have a discussion on women's participation in the digital economy. So women make up 35% of the workforce in the Malaysian tech space. But are they equally empowered as their male counterparts to take on leadership roles? I'll be speaking about this with Tammy Tan, country manager of Red Hat Malaysia and Lai Pace. CEO of Grab Malaysia's Digital Bank Project. All of this ahead of International Women's Day tomorrow. So stay tuned for that conversation. Uh, let's turn our attention to what's going on in the international front. On Saturday evening, United Nations member states finally agreed to a text on the first international treaty to protect the high seas. This treaty, which took decades of negotiations, is crucial for enforcing the 30 by 30 pledge made by countries at the UN Biodiversity Conference in December. The 30 by 30 target is to conserve at least 30% of the planet's land and ocean by 2030. Now, the exact wording of the text was not available immediately after uh, Saturday's announcement, but generally this has been well received by activists who hail it as a breakthrough moment for the protection of biodiversity. What then is a significance of this Treaty of the High Seas and what could be the positive outcomes? For some answers on this, we speak to Shantini Gunarajan, Policy Lead at the Policy and Climate Change Unit of WWF Malaysia. Shantini, good morning. Thank you very much for joining us. So why did it take so long for there finally to be a treaty to protect the world's oceans that lie outside national boundaries? Very good morning, Jensen, Shavana, and Xiaoning. Thank you so much for having me today. Now, what we need to understand is that international treaties do not happen, do not get produced overnight, and the journey towards achieving a treaty is not always straightforward. There is a long process that is involved wherein we firstly need to identify the problem, identify the gaps in terms of international law and institutions, over the presiding subject matter, and then only do we proceed towards negotiating a text. So in this context, because we want to address a highly complex issue, what we want to see is collective agreement and collective interest towards developing a treaty. And in that process, first we need to have consensus that yes, there is a problem, there is an institutional gap, there is a legal gap, and we begin negotiations. So 20 years encapsulates that entire process. So negotiations on a text in itself maybe commenced about six, seven years back. Shantini, for those that are not so familiar, what are the high seas in the first place and how important is it to biodiversity and the planet? Excellent question. So the high seas is generally the water column beyond national jurisdictions. So under international law, we have already delineated maritime zones which fall within the jurisdiction of each country. However, technically speaking, we all know that oceans constitute about 70% of our planet, but about two-thirds of these oceans beyond lie beyond national jurisdictions. So this is where high seas are. And another important term is the area, which is the continental shelf. While high seas refers to the water column, the area refers to the seabed in itself. And collectively, these two areas are often called the areas beyond national jurisdictions. 
Why is it important? Well, our oceans are an important climate regulator. It helps to produce oxygen, absorb carbon, and also store greenhouse gases and release it throughout various stages of the ocean cycle. It also supports global fisheries. It is home to thousands of species, some of which I believe is yet to be discovered, and hence it promises tons of untapped potential in terms of biodiversity and also a promise of future research. Okay, and if we look specifically at this High Seas Treaty, I mean, what do you think is likely to be included? And, you know, what are some of the key measures that are probably going to be incorporated? Okay, so based on what was already negotiated, the text in itself would include core components ranging from access and benefit sharing of genetic resources, in that whatever resource that is being accessed, be it some sort of deep-sea corals or other form of life at sea, there's going to, there's, there's to be a regime where access and benefits would be equitably shared among all countries, regarding, regardless of whether they're landlocked or whether they are coastal countries. Second, and very importantly, from a conservation point of view, this now presents an opportunity to establish marine protected areas in these areas which are beyond national jurisdiction. And it provides a process for the said establishment of marine protected areas. Thirdly, it also then would provide for environmental impact assessment. So any country that is seeking to carry out activities in the high seas would now have to carry out environmental impact assessments. And this would allow us to consider the cumulative pressure that we put on our seas when we carry out activities such as deep sea bed mining, fisheries, and so forth. Mm. And then there are a myriad of other provisions that I'm sure would be included, including transfer of technology, financial support, and so forth. And I think what's important about this treaty is that it is going to be legally binding on all UN member states. But given that, uh, given just the vastness of what this covers, how do you think this treaty is going to be enforced? Yeah, so I think more importantly, the question is how this treaty is going to be implemented, mm. right? So the interesting point is that this treaty presents great opportunity through the establishment of various committees and institutions, such as the Implementation and Compliance Committee, which is going to help facilitate the implementation of the different provisions. It's going, to, it's going to see the setting up of a scientific and technical body, which will help provide the necessary scientific and technical advice and guidance and direction when it comes to the establishment of marine protected areas and environmental impact assessments and so forth. And more importantly, as member states, as signatories to this new agreement, when it does get to be up for adoption later, mm. it's the responsibility then falls upon member states to actually adopt, I mean, employ the necessary measures to implement the, the treaty responsibility. And Shantini, more importantly now is what's next and what are the next steps? It took 20 years to get this draft text. What are the next steps that are necessary for the inter international community to take to protect the high seas further? What else urgently, urgently needs to be done? Definitely, we are not going to wait another 20 years. <laughs> So the cake is out of the oven per se, but we are not quite ready to eat it yet because now there is then the process of finalizing the text. The text has to be put up for adoption. And very importantly, the text will only come into force 120 days after at least 
60 countries sign sign on to it and ratify it. So once it comes up for adoption, it is immensely important that countries do sign up and ratify this convention so that it can come into effect. And then as things would follow, we can then work towards achieving, as you mentioned, the Kunming Montreal um, Global Bio-D Framework targets on achieving the 30 by 30 for ocean conservation and also restoring 30% of degraded ecosystems. So those actions are important at the global front and at the national front, countries need to be prepared to take on this shared responsibility of our common heritage, which is our oceans. And at the Malaysian front, I think it's also timely that we start looking at how comprehensive and apt our ocean environmental governance system is. Shantini, thank you very much for speaking with us. That was Shantini Gunarajan, Policy Lead at the Policy and Climate Change Unit of WWF Malaysia giving us a primer on what the UN Treaty on the High Seas means for the conservation of biodiversity of oceans. Okay, hands up. Did you hear, know about this treaty before it was announced on Sunday morning? I didn't, right? So, I'm not the only one. There are comments coming out of the Guardian newspaper that said that called this uh, the most important talks no one has ever heard of, why the High Seas Treaty matters. And I think it's because what the oceans do for us, right? Um, they're the biggest, largest carbon sink. They are rich in terms of uh, animal life and so much has yet to be explored. But yet there's been no treaties on it in terms of how we treat it. I think it's it was a very long-drawn process, though, to get to this, to this agreement. I think it's absolutely important that country, um, that member states of the UN have a level playing field, that they were all going by the same guidelines. It's similar to um, when we talk about space exploration or exploration of Antarctica. The seabed has so much economic potential that uh, we really want to make sure everyone has access and that, mm. you know, it's actually preserved for the future as well. And by the way, the treaty literally got done at the very last minute. In fact, it just kind of expired because there was a deadline on March 3rd and they kind of signed it on March 4th. They worked through the night. Uh, But let's see implementation and enforcement. That's the next step. 7.46 in the morning. We're heading into some messages. And when we come back, we're going to discuss the flooding situation in Johor and other southern states. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.